You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is a podcast and you can access the podcast within 24 hours of the uh, chat. Now, young Kelly, our brilliant producer, once again has placed her hand in the barrel and she's pulled out the name Jasmine Bazzani. Hello, Jasmine. Hey, Joe. How's it going? I'm doing very well, but more importantly, how are you going? I'm doing very well as well. Ah. Take it easy on me, please. I have listened to your <laughs> interviews and I'm kind of nervous, to be honest, about what you're going to ask me because you, yeah, yeah. you can get pretty personal. <laughs> well, I can get personal, but you, you don't have to answer the questions. This is a, this is a, this is a chat, Jasmine. Okay. I, I said to Kelly, I said, she sounds nervous. Oh, really? Does it come out in my voice? I am a bit nervous. I am, to yeah, be honest. Look, look, I'm sure you've never done a 56-minute interview about yourself. No, definitely not. No, look, I'm going to be very kind to you because it's unusual Great. for me to be kind. But on oh, Radical Australia, you. I'm always kind to the guests because if I'm cruel to them, I'll never get any other guests. <laughs> look, yeah. it's a very simple format. We talk about you. If you don't want to answer anything, you know how to deflect it. Pretend you're a politician and you kind of say something else. Don't answer the question, all right? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure if we want to see politician version of me because that would be pretty gross, I think. Oh, I don't know, Jasmine. Now, the first thing, obviously, I can pick up a little bit of an accent there, Jasmine. Is that correct? Well, I don't know. It's weird. A lot of people say that I have an accent, but I can't hear the accent that I have. What accent do you think that I have? It's not I a think, very Australian uh, accent. No, I think I think you've got... There's a Middle Eastern element to it. Um, right. As a, you mean as, that it's kind of... It's kind of like woggy, like it's kind of like, boy, what's it going, what's up, bro, no, no, like no, no, that? No, 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 I'm no. the wog, I'm the wog, I'm the wog, don't forget that, I'm the wog, Toscana, I'm the wog, you're, you're a pretend wog, okay, you came on Oh, later. I'm new generation wog, oh, new yes, generation, right. come on, we can all be wogs, Joe, we can all no, be wogs. No, 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 we've patented the term, I mean, when I used to go to school, I used to be called wog, wog boy. You know, and, and it was derogatory in those days, you know. It sounds like a superhero, Wogboy. Well, Wogboy, yeah, to yeah. the rescue. Well, I did it think, it, well, no. being a megalomaniac, I did think of myself as a superhero, even when <laughs> I was two now. So, where were you born? I was born in Iran, in Kurdistan, in Iran. So, ah, well, there yeah. we are. We picked it. Yeah. So, uh, was it the last name that gave it away, or was it actually the accent? Because I really want accent. to know if I have an no, accent. You it's do, an accent. You do have an accent. Uh. I mean, I I was born in this country almost 70 years ago, yeah. and I still have a... Because I didn't speak any English for the first five years of my life, and I still have an accent, and people can pick it up if they're attuned to it. So we think mm. we're Australian, but I'm afraid, mm. baby, we're not Australian. <laughs> So what language did you speak in the first five years of your life? Italian, Italian or Greek? Well, I actually, yeah, spoke, I actually yeah. spoke Sicilian because uh, my parents kind of were Sicilian nationalists and we didn't speak Italian at home. We speak the local oh, yeah. dialect, which I assume oh, would be cool. the same in your situation, wouldn't it? Yes, yes. I spoke Kurdish at home to my mum mm. and I spoke English to my dad, even though my dad is also Kurdish. I think he was just trying to practice English on us. So yeah. I spoke English to my dad, but I still speak Kurdish to my mum today. Mm. So have you got any rec... What's the first thing you can remember about being on planet Earth? Um, the first thing I can remember... I've, I've thought about this in the past, and I'm pretty sure it was losing my shoe, 
on a bus. I think that's the first memory that I have from planet Earth. I'm pretty sure. But it's kind of hard to tell from when you're a kid because it's like, how do you know which one came first, which memory, you know? It's kind Mm of... But, yeah, I lost my shoe on a bus because I was going to English class with my mum. My mum was going to English class and my sister and brother were at school at the time. And I was, I'm the youngest of three. So I was left with my mum who was trying to learn English. So she would take me to her English class with her. And I just remember always being really uncomfortable in my clothes, like just hating what I was wearing. I was either too hot, too cold, or like there was something spiking me on my body. So I was always just trying to get rid of my clothes, basically. This is what my mum tells me, and this is what I remember as well. Mm, this sounds so a bit, on the, uh, excuse me, we, uh, this, is a, this, <laughs> this sounds a bit risque to me, this type of interview. Look, it is broadcast in the afternoon, and there are kiddies listening. So oh, you, yeah. sorry, you try sorry. to behave yourself, Jasmine, all right? I what? will, I will, yeah. Sorry right. about that, yeah. Got a bit R-rated for a <laughs> Yeah, yeah very quickly, I mean. That's, that was going to come at the end. So what colour was the shoe? I have no idea. I don't remember. But yeah. knowing my mum and how she dressed us, it would probably be something frilly, something with lace, something pink, yeah. something very like... Um, girly. Girly and yeah. old, old kind of vibes, you know, like old mm. school vibes. Mm. Yeah. So was this memory an Australian memory or a memory in Iran? This is an Australian memory because I came to Iran when I was two years old. So, right. So, yeah. So your parents, um, they lived in Kurdistan in Iran. So what was their life like? What was their life like? Mm. Well, Iran's one of those countries that kind of, in my opinion at least, I, what I see is like it changes rapidly, like the situation and the historical, political context of the country just changes rapidly. So it would depend on what period of their lives you would be asking what it was like or what their lives were like. From what I've heard, they had very or huge differences in different periods of their lives. So, you know, you had prior to the revolution, it was a certain way. And then during the revolution, it was a certain way. As it was happening after the revolution, it was a completely different way. And then... After after the revolution, it was different as well. Right. But yeah, if you, I would say that in all of those periods, there was goods and bads, I guess. But yeah, my parents did experience like a lot of really difficult things, as many people did in Kurdistan at that time, and still to the, to this day. But yeah, they're really um, amazing, strong people who are very inspiring. Um, and also are very traumatised as well, obviously, from That's all of right, the yeah. things that have happened. Did, um, but, yeah. Did they ever, did they ever, have they ever talked to you about why they um, basically left? Well, yeah, definitely. But I feel like what they say is maybe not 100% the, like, depth of it. Like, it's not the whole... Thing, if you get what I mean. Yes, yes. If you, if you ask them why they came to Australia, my dad would tell you, I came here to study. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, I came here to study. I came here to get an education. I came here to have a high-quality standard of life in terms of material things being available and having everything that you need, all the education that you need, the healthcare, the financial things, all that stuff, the security, the lack of war, etc. Um, actually, the like lack of war is not what he would say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I infer from the experiences that they had in their lives and the uh, instability and the chaoticness, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I think the part of the reason that they came here is to escape some of that stuff. Right. So what did he study? My dad studied microbiology. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. And your mum? Uh, my mum studied teaching. Mm-hmm. She was a teacher in Iran, but when she came here, she was not a teacher anymore in Australia because mm-hmm. she was taking care of us. And and her qualifications wouldn't have been recognised. That's a, yes. a migrant story and a refugee story. You come here, you're very skilled, but your qualifications are not um, recognised. Yeah. Now, now, it's interesting that your mother took you, took you to English classes because you've actually stirred up a little memory in my head. 
when I was about <laughs> seven because in those days uh, we had an English language test for migrants before they could become citizens, a little bit like today. And um, I used to do my mother's English exams for her. Because <laughs> <Nice. Nice. laughs> we lived kind of in the country and we get this correspondence, you know, and she had to fill yeah. it all out. And the yeah. da- dad didn't know much about the English. And here I was, grade two, and I'm supposed to fill out this English <laughs> thing. That yeah. was very funny. So you brought, you brought a happy memory to me. Thank you, Jasmine. <laughs> now, I assume... Your real name isn't Jasmine. You've Australianised it. Uh, it's originally Yasmin. Yasmin, right. Yeah. Right. So, so any particular reason you changed it? Well, I got very sick of pronouncing and spelling for people all the time, especially mm. over the phone. It's very tedious. And to be honest, sometimes I just don't want people to question me or ask me or like investigate about my background or like where I'm from or all this stuff. Sometimes I just want to fly under the radar and not have those conversations because immediately like anywhere you go, like even the most simplest interaction, like at a coffee shop turns into a whole thing. Do you know what I mean? They're yes, like, yes. What's your cost? They're like, what's your uh, name? You know, like you order a coffee and they're like, what's, what, what would you like? And, if you say your real name, like it's always, always going to turn into a big deal. They're going to be like, oh, wow, that's so beautiful. Like, where is that from? Like every single time. And it's just like, I don't want to go through that, you know, 10 to 15 times a day. So I'll just make it easy and I'll just make it Jasmine so that mm. that doesn't happen. Yeah, but the world's changed. See, we used to change our names and Australianized to fit in. Now they accept you and you change your name because you don't want to talk to them. I, mean, I don't think they they they're very accepting. I think it's a superficial acceptance. You think and so? it's not not I mean it would be 100% way better than back when you were a kid, but I think that as soon as people know that you kind of grew up Muslim or you come up from a Muslim background, even the most progressive people kind of mm. immediately want to they want to know that that type of Muslim that you are is not the type of Muslim that they're thinking about. You know what I mean? Oh, you mean so you're, I think you're not the caricature, you're a real human being. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, they, so, they, they look at you and they think, why, has, why doesn't she look like one of them? Yeah, or they're like, why does she have tattoos and like gold teeth and why, yeah. why is she like talking very well or like whatever, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And, I, and it's not a big deal. It's kind of natural for those things to happen when someone uh, is different to you, but it's just tiring when it turns into a whole Well, it does. Yeah, that's the interaction. That's the, that's the basis of it, yeah. Yeah, look, it's interesting you mentioned you've got gold teeth. You should never give me these opening lines, Jasmine. How many gold teeth do you have? I just have two, just two. Yeah, you realise that in the good old days, the gold teeth were actually yeah. a method by which you could carry your wealth with you when you were you know, pushed out of a particular part of the world as refugees. A lot of people had gold teeth for that very reason. But would they take them out on the other end and sell them then? Yep. That seems yep. kind of crazy. Well, oh, no, no, man. no. If you've got nothing, if you've got nothing, right, and you've got gold teeth, you've actually mm. got something with, by which to survive, and that's what people used yeah. to do. That's why you find that a lot of more uh, nomadic people have a lot of jewellery. Like in, in southern Europe, you'll find there's a lot of gold jewellery in the Middle East, and the whole point about having all that gold jewellery, people think, oh, you know, it's off the, you know, it's kind of show off. It's not. It, historically, it was a way of actually being able to transfer your wealth with you if you were pushed out of your village or if there was a war on or something. And it's the same with gold teeth. Because in the in the uh, in the Holocaust during the Holocaust, the uh, Nazis uh, made a point of actually looking in every mouth and pulling out the gold teeth. And once people, awful. it was dreadful, dreadful. But that's that's where it comes from. Yeah, I get that. In mm. my family, we always give gold as presents. So mm. everyone has like a collection of gold that they have and then a lot of people use it to put down a house deposit when they're older in their lives. So mm. that's definitely part of my culture as well. Mm. I get that. But I didn't know about the teeth and taking it out and selling it and stuff like this. I thought that was just a joke that my dad would make 
<laughs> I think he's looking at you with, in case he goes bankrupt. So watch out. <laughs> so where did you go to school? I went to school in lots of different places. We moved a lot growing up. So I went to school in Bankstown, um, Lakemba, uh, in southwest Sydney. I went to I went to school then in Greenacre, and then I went to school in Campbelltown, and then Liverpool finally for high school. And I also went to school for a couple of years in Iran because we moved back when I was about 10 years old. So... Yeah, went to lots of different schools, but the longest stint was in Liverpool in southwest Sydney. Mm. That was where I went to high school, yeah. Right. So why did you go back? Why did your family go back? They'd come to the promised land, the land of milk and honey, and they went back to <laughs> Iran. What, what, what happened? <laughs> well, it was always a temporary thing for my mum. My mum never really wanted to come here. She just agreed to come here because my dad wanted to finish his PhD. Mm-hmm. So... It took him really, really long to finish it, so she kind of got sick of being here, and finally we had an opportunity to be able to go back, and so we kind of um, did that. My mum never wanted to stay in Australia forever. She always wanted to stay in Iran. But when we went back to Iran, it wasn't really possible for us to stay there because my brother was already in grade, like, 11, and we... Because we spoke Kurdish to my mum, we couldn't read or write in Persian, which is, we couldn't even speak Persian, we couldn't understand Persian, which is the language that everyone has to graduate with and study in Iran. Like, they don't let us speak Kurdish. So Mm. we had to learn Persian from scratch, and because my parents are so focused on education and academia and um, getting good grades and stuff, this was really important for them, and my brother couldn't study Persian and get his Persian to the level where he could get really good grades because he had to start from zero to grade 11, almost graduating high school. So that's why we had to come back. So how long were you in Iran the second time? Uh, two years. And have you got any interesting recollections? Yeah, those were like the two best years of my life, to be honest, by far, by absolutely far. I mean, so many interesting recollections. I think like the hugest thing that happened for me in Iran when we went back was definitely the realization of poverty and like my own like insane levels of privilege I guess being in Australia and having you know uh, security uh, material security in terms of you know the government being able to provide us with you know uh, levels of support that is way higher than what anyone could even dream of in Iran and I just remember how intensely upsetting and difficult that was like to go out onto the street every day and see kids who are my age you know roaming the streets yelling out to sell to buy sorry they would like you know go in the streets in the morning to buy people's old bread so that they could sell the old bread at a place just to make a buck so that they could support their family and there was just like kids doing this you know selling corn on the streets and all this stuff and it was just really really heartbreaking and I just remember the level of like severe kind of depression that caused not depression I wouldn't call it depression but just like really upsetting it was just really really upsetting and crying a lot all the time and like going out into the streets and just like crying and stuff like this and just being really really overwhelmed and um but but it was also like a really beautiful two years of my life because I got to connect with my extended family which I don't have any extended family in Australia so got to you know, be a part of a big community of people who loved me and were just, like, obsessed with me and, you know, got to hang out with my cousins who we spoke the same language and that was really amazing and incredible and got to, like, climb the mountain in my hometown and just kind of fell in love with that mountain and we would just, like, go on that mountain all the time. Anytime we wanted to do something fun, it was just going to the mountain, drinking from the spring water, waking up at, like, 5 a.m. to get onto the peak, climbing trees, eating apricots, eating walnuts, eating, like, pistachios, stuff like this. So there were no helicopter parents in Iran? No, no helicopter parents, exactly. <laughs> you, you got it. That's it. My mum my mom would literally let me go out and catch a taxi on my own. It was, it was incredible. It was crazy. In Australia, I wasn't allowed to do anything on my own. <laughs> That's right. No, it's, it's interesting because... Um, 
I've got the same experiences when I was small, you know. You'd kind of yeah. wake up in the morning and you'd say to your mum and dad, look, uh, I'm going out. And this is when you're seven or eight, you know. And they yeah. say, "Come home before dark, or you won't get yeah. any, or you won't get any tea if you're here, if you're not here after if you're here after dark." And that was it. You know, you did the most extraordinary things. I'd go eel hunting. Yeah. I found yeah. this homeless man who taught me how to play the harmonica. It just right. went on and on, you know. And you, yeah. you, you had that same independence. Do you think it's it's developed your character? Do you think it's changed you that experience of being able to be so free at such a young age? Yeah, I think it, those two years in Iran were extremely formative for me. I think if I hadn't spent those two years in Iran, I wouldn't have developed probably the levels of confidence that I have today, and I probably wouldn't have developed the same strong links of identity that I have today to my culture, being Kurdish and being Iranian. I think that that would have been a much more distant vague kind of thing in my life. So I think it definitely was a huge, uh, amazing thing that my parents did for me and also just such a cool, amazing contribution to my personality and my character and who I am today. Uh, but I don't think that, you know, uh, like the two years were great, you know, and if I hadn't had those two years, I definitely wouldn't have developed the same levels of independence and confidence that I have today. But in Australia, that was really not the case. It was kind of like the complete opposite and quite like extreme to the other end of the spectrum. Like my parents were very distrustful of this society because the values that they were seeing on television and on the streets and in their interactions with people were just so extraordinarily different to the values that they had and wanted to raise their kids with. So they were very not trusting of broader Australian society and wouldn't let us really do anything without their supervision. And they were pretty strict parents. And so what I experienced in Australia was just very sheltered and very isolated, I would say, from the broader kind of regular experiences of, you know, going and hanging out with a homeless person, blah, blah, blah. But then when I reached the age of kind of 15, I started to rebel against that those strict conditions that my parents had set for me. And I kind of went mm. in the complete opposite direction and left home and all that stuff. Yeah, you realise this This is the, the normal migrant story. I mean, you, yeah, you kind of touched totally. on it. when You said you went back to Iran and you were basically uh, idolised by your extended family, but there was that, yeah. that's the difference. Here you were a nuclear family and your parents yeah. really were... It's, it's us against them, you know, society yeah. as, a, as a whole there you were actually part of a society and that's the, that's that's a, that's a huge difference to be part of a be part of a village yeah um i mean here to a significant degree the migrant story is a very sad story because i saw my parents basically as a a human sacrifice so that their yeah. children could you know get on in the world in inverted commas yeah. you know and that's that's what happens yeah so did you sorry yeah. All right. you can sorry. ask questions it, i'm happy to answer them i can okay do you feel do you ever feel like a sense of debt to your parents because of that? Of course. Yeah. I mean, uh, they made extraordinary sacrifices so that yeah. I could get an education. And uh, as you said, it yeah. was much more difficult in those days than it is today. Uh, there's the veneer, you know, of, of equality and acceptance, as you said. There's that, that veneer there. But in those days, there was no veneer. People told you what they thought of you, basically. Dirty wog, yeah. you know. Look at that smelly yeah. food you're eating. That type yeah. of stuff, you know. Yeah. Now, getting back to you, I don't want to talk about myself. It's boring. Your your life sounds fascinating. You rebelled at 15. What's new? What's new? A teenager rebelling. <laughs> yeah, typical. Same shit. Just yeah. a standard stock typical story, basically. <laughs> yeah, but, but your rebellion went a bit further, didn't it? You actually said you left home at 15. Yeah, it was a pretty extreme rebellion. It was pretty... Like, just in in my experience of what I saw at school, because I went to a Muslim school, and what I experienced in my family, just completely, extraordinarily unheard of, unprecedented, you know? Like, a kid leaving their Muslim family and rebelling and running away from home and living in a homeless refuge, like, totally unheard of, completely just wild, insane, crazy stuff. And... At school, people were just 
like totally shell shocked and kind mm. of like I went to school and I was like to my principal, you know, I'm not going to come to school anymore if if my dad or my parents ever come to school to see me and talk to me and try to get me to go back home, like I'm never going to come to school again. Mm. So they literally had to have a meeting with my dad, my poor dad. I feel really bad for him, but he had to have a meeting with my principal and be like, yes, okay, I promise I'll never come to school to see my own daughter uh, because my daughter doesn't want to ever see me or talk to me. And I just completely stopped talking to my dad and didn't see didn't see him or talk to him for three years. <laughs> what year was this? Uh, this was 2010. 2010. Now, you said, so did religion play an important part in, in your life up to the age of 15? Yeah, I was very religious, intensely religious, up until I would say about the age of 14. So I was a yeah, full practicing Muslim, kind of like prayed um, four times a day, you know, and fasted Ramadan and believed in God and all this stuff and, and was, yeah, was I fully, fully was very strict practicing Muslim, yeah. So what you think tipped you over the edge at the age of 15? Because what you said, it's, it's unheralded. It's something that doesn't happen in a good Muslim family. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think probably because the level of strictness was kind of so heavy that it triggered that kind of intense level of questioning and investigating and um, doubts and kind of, I guess, to be honest, like what totally tipped me off the edge was reading my brother's diary. That's what happened. <laughs> uh, we, we won't go into that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, it was like a kind of like point. It was a certain point where yes. I suddenly was allowed to question things that I had never questioned before. And right. so I started doing, I started doing my own research. And at that time, you know, it was like Google was just becoming a really good search engine. Mm. And there was like online forums starting to exist in the world. And I was really, you know, in the online world researching and reading constantly about different mm. things relating to religion and stuff like this. And I just got to a point where I stopped practicing. Right. And you think that's, it seems more than that to me. More mm-hmm. than just a a, fa- a loss of faith in a, in a god, it seems much more than that to me. The, this rebellion. Yeah, well, it's a lot of things. It's a mm. lot of things for sure. Uh, you know, one of the things was like developing my own kind of morals and being like, okay, this is what I believe. Like, I don't believe that. I don't understand why you have to go to hell if you're gay. Like, I don't understand that. Mm. I don't understand why, like, and, and this is not what all Muslims believe, you know. No, I understand, just, I understand. Yeah, yeah, this was just what one certain interpretation of Islam was in mm. my family and in my community, which yeah. is different in a lot of places. But oh, I think I think people the, need to understand that yeah. Muslim is as varied as Christianity. There's hundreds of different sects, yeah. and there's also... I don't know if I'm correct here, but uh, you, were you uh, Sunni? Yeah. Yeah, and, and obviously in the Sunni faith, you don't have a central authority. Every imam basically interprets the Quran the way they think it should be interpreted. Yeah, and, and exactly. And so there's, there's a huge decentralisation in terms of belief system, and that's the mistake we make in this country is we think every Muslim is the same, you know. We wouldn't yeah, make that totally. mistake about every Christian being the same because... There's all types of crazies out there. Yeah, totally. (laughs) So what was it like living in... Sorry? Oh, nothing. I was just going to add to that. Well, I think it's because, you know, Christianity is the primary, it's the normal, it's the, you know, it's the, it's, it's the central, right? It's like what is seen. And so like when you are given that, then you are able to be different and you're able to be unique and have individuality. But then when you're positioned as an other and you're kind of excluded and you're alienated from the rest of society, which is what Muslims have become today, then you're not allowed to have those differences and you're not allowed to be unique individuals who, Mm -hmm. you know, have their own interpretation. You just become a kind of stereotype. You become a... yeah, you become an other, you become a stereotype. Yeah, we just, a, just yeah. call them a card, cardboard cutout figure, you know? Yeah. 
where yeah. we project all our prejudices on this cardboard cutout which we've manufactured in our own minds as a society. Yeah. What was it like as a 15-year-old in a, in a refuge? Oh, man, it was great. I loved it, <laughs> to be honest. Like, were, you, were you the baby in the refuge, were you? <laughs> well, I, I wasn't I was a baby. I wouldn't call myself a baby. There were people younger than me, for sure. But I was definitely the golden child. You know what I mean? Like, unfortunately, I, it really sucks that that was the case, and it's really messed up. But, you know, like, on the first night I was there, uh, Paul, the guy who was my social work, like who was one of the case managers and, and caretakers at the refuge, he literally took me outside and sat me down and he was like, look, I got to really tell you what you're up for right now. You know, like, cause you know, I had to explain to them my whole story and why I ran away and all this stuff and in details. So they knew everything. And he was like, look, I gotta, I gotta tell you the reality of the situation in this refuge. Like, there are people who've come out of prison here. There are people here who have done time for assaulting people. There are people here who are drug addicts. There are people here whose parents don't want them in their house. And there are people here whose parents just completely abandoned them and rejected them. And they have no family. And they're very, very different to you. You've had a very sheltered life and you have no idea, like, what it's like. So just don't allow, like, yourself to become influenced in that way. And obviously, I was just like sitting there nodding my head like, yeah, 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 of course, of course, I won't be influenced in that way. Totally, totally. And then I would just like try to try to be cool like them, you know. Yeah, right. So how long did you last in the refuge? Like I said, I was a golden child. So luckily, I didn't last very long. <laughs> I spent like about two months there. They were really trying to find me my own place because they were like, oh, my God, if she stays here any longer, she's going to turn into one of them kind of mentality. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> so it took two months, but then my mum was – she was really, really upset, obviously, understandably, and she really, really wanted me to live with her again. So she kind of convinced me to move back in with her so I could graduate high school because my, you know, grades were really, really important for my family and we were always like really mm. forced and encouraged to study really, really hard. So she convinced me to move back in with her, but then things got really difficult with my mum again. So then I went back to the refuge for another two months and then they got me my own social housing program for disadvantaged youth. And then I was in that program for like a year for under 18 year olds. And that was just like really cheap kind of accommodation with other other crazy people, other crazy kids who were just like rat bags, you know, like me. So, but right. you know, they were obviously a lot more rat bags than I was. I was just, I was just a wannabe. <laughs> you were wannabe rat bag. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and now you want to, you want to be a wannabe radical. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's all just. Pretend it's all just acting. That's all what right. life is, basically. <laughs> so, did you go on to higher education? I did. Yeah, luckily I managed to graduate with a pretty decent grade, and I got a couple of uh, marks for you know being a, a ratbag, being a you know disadvantaged poor person mm. who's had hard difficulties. So I was able to get into uh, media arts and communications in Sydney, and then I dropped that after like two years or something, moved to Melbourne and studied international relations. Internet, why? Inter Look, I don't know how many people I've interviewed on this <laughs> bloody show studied international relations. Is it easy to do? Why do people study international relations? Well, it's a pretty bullshit like degree, to be honest. It's, it's very uh, like kind of liberal and, and frustrating, but it also just, I think... Um, gives you a really good understanding of the world in general. I think a lot of people, like I went into that degree because I read the description and it was basically like, here we're going to explain to you what the hell is going on in this world so that you can understand what is going on. And that was really appealing to me because I had no idea what was going on. And I had like experienced a lot of really hectic things but didn't know why or like how that fit into broader systemic structures or political structures and ideologies, and I wanted to understand that. So that's basically why I studied international relations. Mm, we call it travel. Sorry? I call it travel. That's how you understand international relations. Yeah. You travel, you know. Yeah. You used to, you know, you do a pilgrimage, you go around the yeah. world, you know, you <laughs> bum around. That's, yeah, you don't totally. need a, you that's don't, a good way too. Yeah, well, it's an excellent way. Can I tell you a funny story? 
yeah. about international relations. Yeah. Like my, my late wife, Ellen, and I were in uh, Cairo in 1982, right? Yeah. And uh, we're wandering the back streets of uh, Cairo late at night, as you do when you're young and stupid. And this bloke comes up, you know, in his ill-fitting military uniform. He says, oh, he says, oh, I think you're lost. Would you like to come and meet my brother and his wives and, you know, have have dinner with us, lunch with us, dinner, dinner? I said, oh, yeah, great, we said, right? So we yeah. turn up, we turn up, and they live in this extraordinary two-storey mud brick house. Uh, yeah. You can see the pyramids from up the top. It's a flat roof, right? And yeah. We th- and thought, this is great, you know? Been stupid yeah. and young. And so we sit down and Ellen's sitting next to me and I'm sitting next to him and his brother's over there and his cousin's over there. His two wives are hiding behind a uh, screen and then the kids are running around and halfway through the meal he puts his hand on Ellen's knee and he says, I'm looking for a third wife. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, hmm, this could be a bit... Bit bit more dangerous than we expected. And I said, "Oh, I said, I said, oh, I've got, I've got. Th- this is my third wife, and I'm looking at a fourth wife. I'm looking for a fourth wife." And I stared directly at his wives who were hiding behind the screen, and he got the message. That's international relations, <laughs> you know, on, on the ground. So, did you actually get a job with this degree? Look, I didn't, but I did have opportunities to get jobs, and I turned them down. Why? Why? Well, to be honest, I really regret turning down that job because it would have been really awesome. But, okay, so long story short is basically like 2014, 2015. I'm in, like, I go overseas because... I was able to save some money through squatting by not paying rent and not paying for food through dumpster diving. So I saved a little bit of cash. And there were these bunch of, you know, travelers, hitchhikers, squatters that I had met in Melbourne who were going back home and I wanted to visit them. And they were like, oh, you don't need money to travel. You can just camp and hitchhike and eat out of dumpsters. So just save like $2,000. And that's literally what I did. Save 2000 bucks, went to Europe and just kind of like roamed around for six months, hitchhiking and camping in random spots. So then at that time, there was this like massive deal in the media of, you know, all the um, Afghan Syrian people, refugees who were fleeing war and stuff that was going on. And they were crossing through Eastern Europe and getting to Germany and France and all this stuff. So we kind of thought, oh, let's like go and volunteer and help out. So we went and volunteered and helped out. And we go to the border of Serbia and Croatia and... There's, like, all these NGOs, you know, the Red Cross, um, Medicine Sounds Frontiers, like, Doctors Without Borders, and mm-hmm. then all these, like, other local Save the Children, stuff like this. And only Doctors Without Borders had one Persian translator, uh, interpreter for, like, they had no one who could speak uh, Persian. Oh, there was another guy from the UNHCR, too, but there was two people in the whole place that could speak and interpret symptoms. And, you know, a lot of Afghans speak Dari, which is very similar to Persian. Mm-hmm. So... You know, when they found out that I could speak Persian, everyone was just like, have a job, have a job, we'll pay you so much money, please, please come work for us. And so Doctors Without Borders offered me a job, but I ended up declining the job because I felt really uncomfortable with the way that they were wasting resources and the way that whole, like, non-governmental organization structure was going down in that area like they were not sharing information they were not sharing resources it felt like these guys were competitive competing right it felt like they were competing to be the most heroic saviors of these poor refugees and i felt freaking disgusting about it and so i was just like i'm sorry i'm way too punk and anarchist for you guys so <laughs> i'm like not gonna take a job and i kind of like was getting a little bit of judgment i guess from the anarchists as well that probably played a role mm. and so i ended up not taking the job but i think it would have been really good to advance my persian speaking skills which i would have really appreciated uh so that's why i think in retrospect i would have still taken the job but yeah, yeah. well you know you could have been it could have been helpful i mean yeah. you kind of cut your um golden girl umbilical cord there didn't you 
I know. Every I time, do, every do. time you've been in a hairy situation, you've fallen on your feet. <laughs> yeah, totally. But it was a good lesson. Like it was a good lesson. Like I think it's really hard. Like to be honest, if you have values and to work in an organization where you see all of these really, really like horrible things like going on that you disagree with. And a lot of my friends who work in the NGO sector experience it. And I just, I guess I wasn't like mentally strong enough to be able to accept those things and just Mm. kind of do my job and, and get on with it. And international relations is a degree where most people end up in the NGO sector or working for the government. And I wasn't going to work for the government. Fair enough. So you came back to Australia. Is that when you reconciled with your parents or did you reconcile before you went overseas? I actually reconciled before I went overseas because my sister got married. So that was kind of like an excuse and an occasion for me to start talking to my dad again. But I never stopped talking to my mum. I was always talking to my mum. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's good. So you came back to Australia. What year was that? Was it 2000 and what, 12? 16. 16. 16. That was 2016, yeah. So how old were you then? I was 20. Or twenty one, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I was born in nineteen ninety four, so I think I turned twenty two in two thousand sixteen. So you were twenty two. You came back to Australia. You'd seen the world, especially. Yeah, the, some parts. There's, there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than the Croatian Serbian border. I can tell you, it's a, it's a terrible place. A terrible history. Yeah. Did you feel totally. the uh, Did you feel the dead hovering over your shoulders? I did. I mean, to be honest. I wasn't really thinking about that history at the time, but that's interesting now that you bring it up, actually. Uh, but it was a horrible, like, vibe. It was awful. Like, there was just lines and, like, like kilometres of people just pouring into that area, camping. There was very few toilets. There was just such a horrible, draining, awful atmosphere. People were exhausted. People had walked so long and were just, yeah, just it was really intense. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's nothing worse than the smell of a mass of humanity together not actually being able to relieve themselves in a, in yeah. a proper fashion, yeah. Yeah, if anybody's been involved with uh, refugees or in a war situation recognises that smell and you'll never forget it. Now, let's get him back to Australia. You've come back, the Golden Girls come back to the Golden Land. So <laughs> what are you going to do at 20, what did you do at 22? Well, that's when Bendigo Street started. Bendigo Street? You weren't yeah. involved with those losers, were you? <laughs> yeah, I was, actually. <laughs> well, what? But So what? You needed a place to squat or what? What's going on? Well, yeah, 2016, I came back and I continued studying because I hadn't finished my degree. So I was on a six-month break. So I came back and, yeah, I started squatting again. So... I squatted with a bunch of friends because, you know, like if you're going to choose as a student, if you're going to choose either like abject poverty uh, because you have to pay for rent or squat so you have a little bit money left over so that you can pay for essential things like computers or shoes or, you know, surgery because I needed surgery as well at the time, then I would choose squatting because that means I'll be able to actually have a okay life and get good grades and focus on my studies instead of, you know, working a part-time job on the side as well as studying and then get bad grades. So I was really into my studies at the time and so I decided to continue squatting so that I could manage a decent life and then we got kicked out and, you know, at the time there was Bendigo Street happening. I was involved in getting the first action to happen, like going to the first meeting, and then I wasn't able to be at the first couple of days because I went to a festival. Excuse Uh, me. (laughs) Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Here we are, the devoted punk anarchist, right, (laughs) turns down a job with, uh, was it Medicine Sans Frontiers, turns down a great job, (laughs) comes back, there's a there's a, a really interesting squat political squat happening in Bendigo Street, and you decide to go, <laughs> to, go to a, a festival. Fest- well, what was this festival? And the worst what? festival. The worst fest. I'm sorry. Okay. What was no the festival? Disrespect. What was it? Look. All right. Okay. Let me just give this precursor. No disrespect 
to people who enjoy going to this festival, like, I do not mean to insult you in any way. It can be look, great. Look, look, you can but... insult anybody you like on this program. It's fine. <laughs> don't worry. Well, I just don't want to create enemies for myself, you know, but confess. I'm confess. not the confessed. Oh, yes. no. I went yes. to the first one in 1976. Really? Oh, my the God. first confess. You were the first confess. I'm nearly 70. Give me a break. Wow. Huge. That Huge. was that was that was counterculture. Now it's mud and nudity, isn't it? Dude, it's just. I'm sorry. Like, I don't. No disrespect to hippies, but like, it's honestly just hippie BS. Okay, it's not. I don't want to reduce it to that. But yeah, it is. No, it has. It's it's totally changed. A lot changed. of it has. A lot yeah. of it has that. And you know, when we went to Confess, we did try to politicize it. Like we had, like <laughs> it was with doing it ourselves. We had an, a camp that was running radical workshops, and yeah. it got and nobody just, turned up. Yeah. No, heaps of people came. Did heaps they? of people came. Yeah. And you know, that's the beautiful, awesome thing about hippies. They're very open-minded and willing to, you know, <laughs> hear and listen about new things. But but not do much. <laughs> I mean. They are annoying in a lot of ways, I must say. Yeah, yeah. Look, look, the movement movement split in about 78, 79 on that very thing, and it's become more of a lifestyle kind of um, consumer-driven festival where, you know, you get get your tarot cards read and you do all that Uh, things. It's just, honestly, it's just, look, I'm not not usually the person to be like, meh, cultural appropriation, do you know what I mean? But, like, the cultural appropriation is severe. Do you yeah, know what I mean? It is, yeah, it's yeah. intense. Well, well, well when you don't have a culture, you need to appropriate somebody else's <laughs> culture. You know, don't you understand know, the basis of capitalism? I don't know, man. Like, if I was white, I would just try to, like, you know, um, connect to old school white culture. It's hard, though, isn't it? Because if you do that... Yeah, look here, mate. Like look here, person. mate. Look here, mate. Look here, mate. There's not much going for old school white culture, you know. There's binge drinking... Technicolor yawns, you know, doing things with Sheila's, you know, looking after your dog, Bluey. Come on. No wonder we appropriate things. Don't forget the Lamington. Hey, 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 come on, Jasmine. (laughs) You have just, you've crossed the boundaries. Are you? Don't insult the Lamingtons. Don't insult the Do you know the historical origin of Lamingtons? Oh, shit. Is that, is that true? Is there a, like, legit good story about Lamingtons that I'm disrespecting? Sorry about that. No, 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 no. What, you're not what? disrespecting. I just need to educate you young people about Lamingtons, you know? <laughs> right. There was a shop here in Smith Street across the road in the Collingwood side, and the side I try not to go to, that had the best Lamingtons in the world. And I had to educate them about the history of Lamingtons because I'm a queen. I was born in Queensland, right? And every yeah. Queenslander knows the history of Lamingtons because what happened is... The governor of Queensland was broke after Federation and the governor of Queensland had, I think it was the Prime Minister or somebody important turned up for afternoon tea and the only thing that was left in the cupboard was coconut, chocolate, flour. So what did the cook do? He invented this new sweet called a lamington. But that you, was invented in, in Queensland at the Queensland. turn of the twentieth century. Yeah. So the person who invented it, you're saying it was like a kind a poor of like Harris, a poor yeah. Harris yeah. dish pig, yeah. you know, cook, you know, <laughs> for the governor. He didn't know what to do because yeah. there are all these important guests. <laughs> there's nothing well, there in the cupboard. Go. There's there's some like fantastic white culture to embrace and. Valorise and, you know, nothing uh, problematic there about Lamington, really. No, there's nothing problematic, but I'm just saying, isn't it a fascinating story? It is, yeah. Everybody talks about Pavlovas being Australian. I'm afraid Pavlovas are New Zealanders. They actually invented them, but we took it over. But uh, Lamingtons, that's our dish. Well. I'm sure I've now educated some poor Iranian Kurdistan woman about Lamingtons. I'm very pleased. (laughs) My my purpose in life has been fulfilled. Congratulations. Yeah, I've been, I I feel fulfilled. It, it, it was. I feel that waking up this morning was worthwhile, man. I'm really happy that I contributed to that feeling for you. Yeah. Well. So, what are you doing these days, Jasmine? These days, I am making a documentary, and 
you're I making am. a documentary. Uh-huh. Where did you pick up yeah. all these skills? Can you use a camera, can you? Well, yeah. Yeah, it's not so hard to use a camera, but I'm not like a pro at using cameras, that's for sure. Oh, the digital age, anybody can use a camera. Yeah, hmm. yeah. But Are you allowed not... to tell us what documentary you're making? Of course. Yeah, 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 totally. It is a documentary about Bendigo Street, actually, and the documentary is called Bendigo Street as well. So, yeah. So why do you think Bendigo Street is so important? I mean, it's just a bloody squat, wasn't it, that went wrong? Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing. Like, Bendigo Street, the actual street of Bendigo Street, is just an excuse, really, to talk about bigger, more broader kind of political, historical things that have happened, like... You look at Bendigo Street and you think, oh, it's just a normal, mundane, boring, everyday street, which is part of the whole deal of the documentary. It's like, actually, there's no such thing as that in a country that's been colonised and in a country that has experienced the things that this land has experienced and this society has experienced. And when you look at Bendigo Street and you're like, all right, there was a 2016 campaign of the 15 government-owned houses that we squatted. That went for eight months. I mean, that I would argue that that is in itself a big deal enough because it was like national headlines. A lot of people got housed through that campaign. And something like that for that extended period of time isn't something that happens that often. And it was pretty cool. And we kind of put the discussion of housing on the kind of front page, on like the, the centre of national discourse. So there was that. But then, like, you kind of go further in history and then you discover the East West Link campaign where Bendigo Street was in the centre of that campaign as well. And then you go back further and you discover the 1970s F-19 highway that Bendigo Street, again, was in the centre of the, you know, uh, a bunch of houses that existed on Bendigo Street. It used to be a much longer street. Mm. So a bunch of houses were uh, demolished and the street was shortened to build that highway, which is now the Alexander Highway. And then, of course, if you go even further back in time, it's like colonization and the theft and the false treaty with Batman and the um, hoddle, you know, the rubber hoddle at being one of the land thieves who ended up you're having... Not, you're a, not telling me that Batman signed the, the treaty on Bendigo Street. No, but no. it is... It's all right. But, you know, Hoddle Street, which is right behind yes, Bendigo Street, yes. Hoddle Street was, um, mm. yeah, so it's the suburb um, and, you know, William Barrack and all this history and then also the slum reclamations of the 1930s and then also prior to colonization, there's a history of what it looked like on Bendigo Street and how housing was done by Indigenous people and how Indigenous people had housing security and used that space that is now Bendigo right. Street as a space for meetings and stuff like this. Mm, yep. So yep. it's just kind of telling that story. You so know? you're telling the story of Bendigo Streets from pre-colonisation to today. That's it. That's now, it. going back to the F-19 struggle, have you got any uh, footage? Because there's some interesting footage of that period. There is, there is, yeah. We have footage, we have photos. Good. Um, mainly photos, more photos than footage. Mm. But yeah, there's photos of the mayor at the time who got arrested because he was involved in the blockade. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a, it was a big campaign because I remember I was involved in that. It was a big campaign. The oh, yeah. Cars overturned. Yeah. Uh, there yeah. were barricades put up. It was a, a real yeah. dinky die campaign. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and you know the story and the history of Bendigo Street mm. is just kind of being used in the documentary to show people that nothing is just boring old average do you know what i mean like there is a bloody coercive and violent history of repeated cycles of oppression and resistance that has gone into the creation of everything that we experience and live in today and so it's, it's just trying to highlight that and trying to get people to think more critically about things that seem just normal, average, peaceful, chill, mm. good capitalism, you know, colonialism, it's all just, like, great, and we all have houses and we live in them, la-di-da, nuclear family, blah, blah, blah. Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah, but do you, do you realise it's one thing to have an idea, it's another thing to breathe life into an idea on a screen? Oh, yes, I know that. 
that. It's I know very that. I difficult. Maybe yeah. more than you know that. <laughs> yeah, it's the hardest Well, that's what I'm trying to highlight to our life. listeners. Yeah, that well, you, you're, 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 you're serious about this. This isn't just some flash in the pan that you're putting a lot, a number of people are putting a lot of effort and devotion into making this documentary. Yeah, this documentary has absolutely consumed my entire life for two and a half years and will continue to consume my entire life for two more years. Mm. And I have put everything into the creation of this, into trying to create this film. And it is by far the most difficult thing I have ever done in my whole life. And I don't know if I would ever do it again because of how hard it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, yeah. But I cannot wait for it to be over, and I can't wait to actually do the interv- do more interviews because that's my favorite part. But yeah. you know, the the legal aspects, the behind the scene legal aspects, the finances, the getting the equipment, the getting the interviews, the talking to people, the negotiations, the consultations, the buying of copyright, the music, the sound, the color grading. It is everything that you could possibly think of. Jasmine, I'm getting dizzy. I'm getting dizzy. Yeah. You're a yeah, serious yeah. film producer. This worries me. Maybe it's maybe in 10 really, years' time yeah. I can say, we <laughs> interview that famous <laughs> producer of extraordinary documentaries in this planet. Look, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Yasmin, Jasmine. It's been a pleasure. It's, look, i tell you what I like. Most about this interview, it's your enthusiasm for life. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who go through life, and it's a boring drudge for them. It's as if you know they don't appreciate the fact they're alive and there's options. As you kind of mentioned at the beginning of the interview, when you compared the poverty in Kurdistan in Iran to the kind of support systems we have in this country. And what you've done and what I think is makes you a great Australian, and I do use the word great Australian, is the fact that you have been able to give life to projects and ideas that other people only dream about. And I think that makes you an extraordinary human being. Well, everyone can join too, so... If anyone wants to join, they can and they should and, yeah. Well, they should go on their own projects. Let's be realistic. You don't want to be <laughs> or crowded. Or help me out. with mine, you know. I, I, I wouldn't mind some help. Well, yeah. what type of help? Thanks, what type yeah, of help? What type of help? What type of help? Well, anything really from transcribing footage mm. to uh, replying to emails to um, logging footage, all this kind of, like, tedious Tedious things. That, uh, so you uh, want you want the glory, and you want other people to do the tedious work. Your, <laughs> is your name Joseph I, Toscano? Because that's what I do. <laughs> You've just taken a leaf out of my book. <laughs> Kelly does all the work, and I'm the show pony. So you're a show pony. <laughs> all right. No, look, it's really been a pleasure. And I, I, I'm really proud to have been able to talk to you today because I think I think your enthusiasm is the type of thing that people need, especially during a pandemic and during this uh, climate emergency. So I'm very pleased that we spoke to you today and I'd like to thank Kelly very much for organising the interview. Well, thank you both. I really appreciate it and thanks for your kind words as well. uh, I meant every word of every word because I meet a lot of boring people and you're not boring, (laughs) which is good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, guys. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au 
forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.